Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello, Dorothy. Thanks so much for joining us podcast. Such an honor to have you. Hi. Thanks for having me today. Thank you. So I'd like to ask you first, uh, how you'd like to define yourself for the audience, maybe first time we'll see you. Yeah, so uh, I'm an assistant professor at Stanford. I work in robotics. I am in general uh, a researcher, a scientist. I'm interested in thinking about problems in the space of human robot and human AI interaction. Great. So I'm curious about your childhood. How was your childhood was? Do you have any memories about that? Childhood. Yeah, um, so uh, I grew up in Iran, um, which was actually very fun growing up. Mm-hmm. And uh, my parents, my dad is an engineer, my mom is um, a doctor. And I feel like they both were pretty good like role models for me growing up, right? I really enjoyed like working like on random things with my dad and math problems and physics problems with my dad. And I really liked the way he was thinking, like his, his thinking and his logic. And that got me really interested in, in general, like science and engineering. And, and my mom, um, she was an infectious disease specialist, so she was like out like most of the day. And I feel like, like that was also like an interesting role model. I w- always like wanted to be like her, like helping out people. And just like it was kind of like a nice vision of like a modern woman. And I kind of like always wanted to be in the same place that my mom was. So I think both my parents were pretty influential in like how I turned up and how like decisions that I made. So that's kind of like the main thing I remember from my childhood. Inspiring. Yeah. So I'm curious about your research because I think it's very interesting the way you approach multi-agent, how they can cooperate or be competitive or influence each other, as you said. But before that, when you start to recognize the problems in robotics, and if you take a little more about how human can really cooperate or influence, what kind of modeling or questions you try to capture early on in this research line? Yeah, so I think, yeah, so so in my research, yeah, I'm really interested in thinking about problems around first off modeling humans and then thinking about interaction problems. And this really like came from um, back in graduate school when I was working on autonomous driving. And and when you think about autonomous vehicles and how, and how autonomous vehicles interact in the world, uh, I feel like for the longest people weren't worrying as much about the interactions between autonomous cars and human-driven cars and humans around them and pedestrians. And Today, like, of course, like everyone thinks about that, but kind of like the first wave of like autonomous driving wasn't really about that. And, and part of our work was really about thinking about safety of autonomous cars. Um, and, and at the time, like when I was looking at safety of autonomous cars, it really came down to how we are modeling human driven cars or pedestrians around us. And, and we ended up having very abstract models, very mathematical models at the time, um, which I didn't feel like were right. So, so that was very frustrating to me because I felt like we have all these made up models and sure we can prove guarantees and talk about correctness and safety, but they're not really truly capturing how humans are acting in the world. So then at some point I kind of like switched a little bit of fields and started looking at human robot interaction a little bit more carefully, thinking about ways of more accurately or more precisely modeling how humans act around us. 
And I'm not talking about like getting into like the person's head necessarily or like thinking about like the cognitive science of it that that much. But I'm talking about behavior models. How can we build predictive behavior models of humans? Um, and today we use a lot of like learning based approaches. Like so we use a lot of like imitation learning type techniques to, to build models of humans. We look at how to learn from human feedback, human, different sources of human data. And, and based on those, you also try to capture like humans biases at times, like using ideas from prospect theory, behavioral economics, and, and all together, like, like we try to build a representative model of how humans act in the world. Of course, it's not going to capture everything, but like there is also like online adaptation and there is also like being able to do repair and being able to like diagnose that we are not, we are not in the right situation. So I do think it plays a powerful, like an important role, like human modeling when we think about building interactive robots in general. So when it comes to capturing the behavior, when it comes to that, do you, do you think uh, maybe what could be still missing pieces here to capture and which level do you think you are really capturing the significant latent or maybe features or what are you looking for how you make sure you're capturing the right stuff yeah i know that's a very good question yeah right and the, the right stuff really depends on what you want to do with that right like if you're thinking about having a car driving right next to another vehicle like in its like vicinity then you actually need to have like a model of maybe that driver's intent or maybe that driver's like um driving trajectory in the next few seconds if that car is driving like five lanes from you maybe you don't need to have like that level of like detail like like maybe maybe that car is not going to affect your decision making so maybe you, you can have like a much coarser model of, of that vehicle's behavior. So, so we have like a recent work actually where we think about learning the right representation that captures a model, the model of the human or the other agent that we are interacting with. And, and kind of like the core of that work is humans are really good at this, right? Like get two humans, move a table together. They know exactly what to pay attention to. They're not doing like belief modeling over like the policy of the other agent. They're not doing anything like computationally that heavy, but they know exactly like what is the force that they need to keep track of. And, and what we are trying to do is we are trying to use an ideas from unsupervised learning, ideas from representation learning to figure out what is the right representation, what is the right model that needs to be captured for, for coordination and, and collaboration. And how to make sure in that case, for example, you speak about how we can, for example, learn it from human or to robots in that case. So how do you see the safety here or redundancy? Because we speak about if there's failure in the learning process, how they can yeah, have a redundancy in that scenario of failure. Of learning. Yeah, no, that's a very good question. Like, so I started in this field with safety, and my views of safety at the beginning was very rigid. Like, it was uh, I was looking at like providing provably correct guarantees for autonomous systems and control like algorithms. And it was pretty like difficult to do that. And over time, my views over safety has become less and less rigid. So I feel like there are going to be failures at times and we should like be like in, in a lot of settings. And it's useful to be able to like predict them. It's able to, it's useful to be able to do like self-diagnosis, be able to repair, be, be able to do self-repair. So um, I still do think like safety is important. I think it's like a core problem and core challenge that we have as we are thinking about robots interacting with people. I think ways to go about that is yeah, adding redundancy as you were talking about. So if you consider like multimodal data, right? Like if I'm, if I'm observing the human's trajectory as well as human's gaze, as well as the language that they're providing, if I look at like that type of multimodal data that's given from the human, maybe I can think about redundancy in that sensory data that I'm getting and that could help me with acting more safely or like being more risk, like risk averse if, if I 
feel like I don't have enough confidence. So having a measure of risk, I think also like in general helps when you're thinking about human robot interaction. And better than that, what do you think still me missing here? Of course, there's a room of improvement here in that case, but generally speaking from your research and in robotics in general, when it comes to this research line, what's still missing and what could be other direction we give more focus or attention, do you believe in, in that research specifically? Yeah, so I think, it, okay, so this is like, maybe like really like focused on human robot interaction, but I do think there are a lot of challenges in robotics alone, like even outside of thinking about interaction, but this view of, oh, I think about robotics alone without worrying about interaction, I feel like is very limiting. And I feel like there are a lot of like missing pieces when you think about interaction. Like again, like going back to the driving example, right? Like for the longest people were worrying about building a car that just does driving without worrying about like anything else, like other drivers. And, and that is pretty limiting because when you're changing a lane, right? Changing lanes is heavily related to like how this other driver around you actually drives. And I feel like now there is quite a bit of work in the space of human robot interaction, thinking about interactive learning, thinking about these more like interactive type of data and, and trying to like capture information from that. But I feel like what is was something that's missing even today is thinking about long-term repeated interactions. Like right now, a lot of research is about one time, like one shot, few shot type of interactions. But if I feel like, if, if I think about having a robot in my home, like helping me like over, over weeks or over, over like years, I have this long-term repeated interaction that that robot, my behavior changes. I'm a learning agent, my behavior changes. That robot's behavior should also be changing. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be fixed. So I do think like adaptation and thinking about repeated interactions is, it's an interesting problem that maybe is less studied today. And maybe part of it is we don't have robots in our homes right now, but I feel like that's also a big piece of the question that's currently missing. And what does it take, do you believe, so that we can have this kind of generic and continual learning for the robot to uncertainty? And, it, and you speak about non-stationarity and when it comes to human and robots, that what part of your research, you know, what does it take so that we can achieve what you mentioned now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think definitely like techniques from like continual learning, thinking about like modeling non-stationarity are really part of it. I think like ideas from game theory could also be really useful here, like thinking about these repeated interactions and what type of equilibria do you, do you get at after repeated interactions and how can you guide them to get to one equilibria as, equilibrium as opposed to another one is also a pretty like interesting thing to think about. Um, I think a big missing piece also is on the human modeling side of things. So a lot of work on human modeling side is really about building policies or reward functions about humans, but they're fixed based on fixed data collected like offline. And they don't really capture the fact that the human is learning. So, so, so I think we need to capture the adaptation of the humans. The fact that humans is also, the human here is a dynamical system. It's changing. It's not it's it's an intelligent agent and how can we capture that intelligence how can we capture the dynamics of the human changing uh, i think it's also like a big missing piece that we really need to do in addition to continual learning that we do with respect to the environment let's say or like dealing with non-stationarity that's in the environment and i'm curious if there's something was counterintuitive to you when you try to learning from for example human in the process i don't know do you have any counterintuitive moments in, in the research and does it make sense to you but it was counterintuitive yeah, no, that's a good question. Uh, I feel like there are many, but uh, um, yeah, some are actually intuitive and then you don't realize that they're intuitive. So let me maybe give you two examples. So, so yeah, so one example is this recent project that I was 
or this recent thread of work that we are looking at doing representation learning when we are trying to model interactions. So when we were looking at this domain or when we think about modeling interaction, it's very natural, like coming from a mathematical perspective of it, a mathematical formal model of it, it's very natural to model it using theory of mind, right? Like using, using this idea of, oh, I have a full model of the other agent. Let me model everything I can about the environment. Let me model everything I can, I can about the policy of the other agent. And it's a very natural thing to do if you are coming from like the mathematical backgrounds of it. And it took me a while to realize that that's not the thing that humans do in a lot of interactive reactive tasks, like that moving the table example that I was giving earlier. So if you think about like two people moving a table, like I really don't think people are doing this like theory of mind modeling. And, and it's like into like afterwards, after the fact, thinking about it, it's actually very intuitive for people to not do that. But like, I feel like it took me a while to realize that. So it's not a counterintuitive thing. It's really an intuitive thing that took me a while to realize. Um, on the counterintuitive side of things, of course, like we have often like examples that are pretty interesting and they end up being counterintuitive. So like, for example, like we had some work around driving where we were planning for autonomous cars driving around human driven cars. And we had a setting where an autonomous car and the human driving and driven car, they would arrive at an intersection at the same time. And our human, yeah. uh, our autonomous car basically wanted the human to cross first. So what it would do is it would back up. And, and we were like super confused about why in the world is this autonomous car backing up? Because it was super unintuitive. I've never seen any car autonomous, non-autonomous, like back up at intersections. And, and that was pretty counterintuitive, but that was out of the optimization. The car, like the autonomous car decided that backing up is the thing that's going to like make more room, make it more likely for the human to pass. And I found like that particular example really interesting that the robot, the autonomous car, decides to like take these interactive actions that are maybe not like obvious to us, but there's a, like a reason behind it. And the reason here was like the model of the human that was incorporating. That's very interesting. Yeah. But when it comes to, we explain about how, for example, multi-agent can influence each other or that case, it is a trade-off here. I don't know. Did you notice any trade-off though that we can capture how the robot, for example, robot fierce robot or human, it is a trade-off here and the way they capture each other to decide. I don't know what kind of trade-off do you have or you didn't have any trade-off. That, that's a very good question. Um, and there are often various types of trade-offs, but one particular one that comes to mind is uh, the trade-off between safety and uh, other objectives like comfort and efficiency. Like, like for example, again, in, in the driving case, right? Like if you think about an autonomous car, uh, the autonomous car can be really safe. It can basically like slow down every single time it sees a plastic bag. And if it slows down every single time it sees a plastic bag, you're going to feel really like nauseous at the end of like that ride because it keeps like breaking. And, and that's not very ideal, but you can also like think about a very comfortable, very efficient ride, but that very comfortable, very efficient ride, maybe it's not as conservative and maybe it's not as safe. So, so we had this trade, we've been having this trade-off when we think about interactions with humans, right? Like when you are thinking about, again, both in driving and in like manipulation, when you think about a manipulator trying to like help you maybe bring food to your mouth, it's doing something that is very effective. It's very efficient. It's helping you like feed yourself. But the moment it does that, it's also like putting your safety at risk, right? Like robot is coming towards your mouth. It feels very dangerous. Um, so, so like how do we, how do we think about safety and all these other like characteristics and rewards that we really care about 
is, is often a trade-off that we need to worry about. And how do we ensure that this is definitely safe at all times, but also we get some, some use out of the system? Mm-hmm. So when it comes to physical correction, because that's also what you do, how do you see this kind of investment in intelligence? Because you have here the, the brain side and the physical side. So how do you see the correlation here? Which side do you believe in robotics in general? And also to your research, you have to weigh more. Yeah, so I came to in robotic to robotics like a little bit later than like I guess like a normal person who's a faculty in robotics. So like I came from like control theory and formal methods, which was all about the brain. It wasn't as much yeah. about the design and the body and the physical system. And then I was coming from that side of things, and as time passes, like more and more I realized both of them are so incredibly important. And and we need to have like we need to keep an open mind to like having like a better design of the system, better body of the system, as well as like better algorithms. Um and I always like find it interesting like when people try to come up with like algorithms and brains where there is like a very simple like body fix to that problem or like vice versa like you try to come up with this like incredible design but like maybe algorithmically there is a simple fix to it so i really think especially in robotics you need to be super open-minded to like both of these approaches um one particular example was we were we were discussing this problem around assistive feeding so we have a we have a project around assistive feeding and um we were thinking about transfer of the food inside of like the user's mouth um, and, and like the, the right forces that needs to be put in and how do we actually like make sure that the fork like puts the right forces and scoops out like the uh, out, outside of the mouth. And it's a pretty difficult problem. Like how do you do that safely? How do you put in the right forces? And at some point, like one of the students, like we had this conversation and one of the students was like, why don't we just like have a better design of the fork? So it just like itself automatically pushes out the food inside of the math like why do we need to like come up with this like fancy like learning algorithm here like there's like an easy way of fixing it and i think yeah like in general it's nice to think outside of the box and think about both sides Mm -hmm. so when in that case what could be here it's a technological block for you i don't know you speak about that way of the design the i don't know also simulation do you believe before going to physical robot do you think simulation is significant to you or Sometimes it's really hard to capture what's happening, as you explained, very hard to capture this kind of real hard stuff here. So how do you see this technological flux in that case? Yeah. Yeah, so I think all of these elements, including simulation, are incredibly important. And, and I think it's great that everyone is working, like, like people in robotics are working on like these different components of it. That's actually the exciting part of like robotics, that there is like a very like well-defined problem that everyone agrees. I don't have like a robot that can assistively feed people like robustly. I like don't have that. Everyone agrees on that. And then now we are looking about, about like all these different components that really need to come together to help me like do this task better. So I think all of the components are important. In terms of simulation, um, I think it would be really like nice to have like good simulators where we can actually like reset the world, like try out our algorithms. In driving, they play a huge role. Like in in some of our dri- previous driving work, some of the work that we were doing was around automatic test case generation in simulation. So how do we automatically generate like risky scenarios where we can look for like some of these unsafe behaviors? Um, in some of the other domains, it's a little harder. So for example, in the assistive robot, uh, robotics feeding uh, example that I was talking about, 
it's a lot like you are still using simulation, but we don't really have a good like math model or we don't really have like a good model of like the food item or like how the food items like they form. So, so it is pretty, a pretty difficult space, but um, I think it's exciting to work on simulation like because of that, because it would be really interesting to have good simulators to improve some of these algorithms. Yeah, so it plays a huge role. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm curious about the way you choose the problem and I don't know, sometimes it's really challenging how to answer the, the question or how to come up with the right question and how to solve the problem. How, how you approach that? Because sometimes we speak, sometimes we propose complex solution. For, I don't know, sometimes maybe a simpler approach would be sufficient. I don't know how your experience was kind of finding answer for the question or the problem. How we approach that to make sure you're... In, maybe in the right direction, because it's sometimes in uncertainty. That is true. And uh, yeah, sometimes you're working on wrong problems. Like there's that too. I've yeah. definitely like done that. Like, uh, so it's not like, always, it's not like, like that you're always, you always have the right answer here. Um, the way I go about problems are a combination of things that I feel like are pretty unsolved and have interesting research questions like that are not necessarily just like engineering things because like in academia you also want to push the boundaries of research right so so like things where there are interesting research questions are kind of unsolved and excite me right so so it's kind of like a weird combination of things and and sometimes i feel like another factor that comes in is what are the right tools that i have right like can i like am i like the right person to solve like this problem and I personally haven't been very good at like that last item. I feel like people in general like take that into account. Like I, I have a machine learning tool or I have a control theory tool. So like this is the right problem for me to solve because I have the right tool that seems like could, be, could be, give me some answer in this dimension. I personally have moved around between fields a little bit. Uh, I'm more problem driven. Like, like this is the feeding example that I was giving. Like it doesn't exist. It's not there. So, so that really excites me. And I would be happy to like learn and use like new tools that are maybe not in my common like machine learning control theory tool set and, and use those tools to actually like solve the problem. Like going back to the driving example, I was not working on human robot interaction. Like I was working on autonomous cars and formal methods. But then like I felt like the, the answers to some of questions some of the questions that I was interested in were in human robot interaction. And that's how I ended up like trying to like open that field and use use a lot of tools that exist in some of these uh, other fields. But going back to your question, right, like picking the right research, right, right for you, right for you research questions can be challenging. But I'm curious what kind could be other, maybe an inspiration for your research or maybe other hard problems do you think about in robotics if you can pinpoint, because you mentioned, for example, feeding example, one of these examples really complex, but I don't know, in robotics in general, what could be still very hard problems and or maybe when you were trying to think about inspiration, because you started with how the theory of mind and how that's whole research you started with. But I don't know what kind of questions do you have still or research inspiration or hard problems? Yeah. So, uh, so like another direction that in general, like we are also like actively working on is just like uh, around interactions with humans at homes, right? Like if I want to have a robot at home, like I, I want to have like a setting where like if, if you give a robot a recipe and like me start like opening the fridge and bringing the milk out, the robot like knowing like how to coordinate with me and how to collaborate with me and basically like do the complementary set of actions in kind of real time and actually like help me out. 
Um, and, and I think those types of inter interaction, collaboration, cooperation problems are pretty interesting. And, and um, a like, like a lot of research questions underneath it, like fall into categories of um, learning conventions that can, that can help you better coordinate and collaborate with agents. Skill discovery, like figuring out what skill your partner is trying to do, partner modeling, right? So there are a lot of interesting, just like machine learning questions there, but the final like goal here is having a robot that can help you like at home, like uh, maybe help you cooking or like on the feeding example, like I would really want to have, this is, this is maybe a little bit big of an inspiration and 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 goal but by the time that i'm gonna have my kid god knows when that would be um uh, in the future i would like to have a robot that can feed my baby right maybe, maybe for the not for the first child maybe the end of the child hopefully and it's not a large number here but like that would be really exciting to be able to have robots at homes like help you coordinate with you collaborate with you um, one other angle that I think is pretty interesting is language. So if you're doing a lot of work around bringing in language into interaction with robots, so how can we do interactive teaching and how can we think about really like even like beyond language, what are these different modalities that humans have to collaborate and with each other and learn from each other? Language is one gestures, maybe eye gaze, like these are like some of the others. How could we really think about these different modalities coming together to help interactively teach a robot how to do a task? So I think that is also another interesting set of questions. Um, in general, there are also many other like difficult robotics problems, just like dealing with like deformable objects or planning with contact. And like if all of those get solved, I feel like a lot of my problems also become easier. Um, yeah. So that's wow. Very interesting. Yeah. But since we close the end, I have a question for you, but. You've been pointed at the beginning that repeatability, that sometimes we, for example, one shot for the robot and we don't go for like, as you said, it could be in our home and for many years, uh, how we can anticipate this behavior. And also how we can have this kind of robotics from the lab to just to be, have a, a significant contribution in as a commercial product. So it's sometimes it's still challenging. So... How do you see this kind of problem maybe in academia? Do you think it's a problem in academia? How we see, yeah, yeah. For example, there's a publication also, we speak about that, because we have to publish this result. And it will be hard to anticipate this kind of experiment that go for years and years. It will be hard. So I don't know, how do you see that? Do you think that we need to work on that? There's issue here, or do you, how do you see this kind of asking this question to make sure it's significantly beneficial in the long term, not only in a short term and just work one shot and that's it. No, I think that's a, yeah, that's, that's a good question. And that's a difficult one. And I think there's really definitely like need there for, for people thinking about how to, uh, how to close that gap really. So I feel like there is a large gap, like especially in robotics, right? Like in machine learning, maybe there is less, right? Like you develop a system and like that gap of like commercializing it sometimes is smaller. Robotics, that gap is larger. And I think part of it is there are, there are many sub problems underneath and any of them can go wrong. And like together, like it would make that gap to like commercializing a system like a lot more challenging, a lot more difficult. Uh, Rodney Brooks actually has like a really good talk about this at uh, Bay Area Robotics Symposium last year um, and like talking about like Roomba and like that closing like that gap from research like from when the paper was out to like when the actual product was out and people started using it. Um, so I think yeah robotics in general suffers from like many more challenges uh, that one needs to deal with to close that gap. Some of these challenges are things that 
uh, one needs to think about when you go to industry, like, like how can you know, make this more cost effective or how can I make sure that the system like actually like brings like the benefit that like considering like all the costs and everything brings the right amount of benefit. But some of them are research questions that, that like we often like under, not often, but like we sometimes like undermine, right? Like this repeated interaction thing that I was talking about is something that's very easy to undermine. You build your system, it works like once or twice, you show a demo and you're like, oh, I have a system that's going to work great. But you don't really like necessarily consider like what happens over long-term repeated interactions. And I think bringing some of those questions like into research is pretty interesting. So I feel like a lot of times our research needs to be informed by what is going on in practice, what can actually like happen or what doesn't happen in practice and like inform it back to, and bring it back to some of the research questions that you're studying. Um, so yeah, so I feel like it, like th that particular question that, that, that you ask, it does have several components. One is what are some technical research questions that exist that one needs to bring in? Like building like robustness is a, a, like another research question. Like in general, building robotic systems that are robust that work like a million times, like in, in various scenarios is, is a difficult problem. And, and we need to really have that uh, in order to put that system like outside in the world. So um, yeah, so, so like there are research questions that need to be addressed. There are also non-research questions like in, in general for closing that gap that I feel like often like maybe people in academia are not like as aware of them and that makes it like harder to close that gap, but you need to work on both. Great, great. So a few questions left. The first one, I don't know if you have moments of doubt in research because sometimes we have doubt in what we do. I don't know if you have moments of doubt and how we deal with them. Mm -hmm. No, I have had moments of doubt. Um, let me think. Yeah, so um, one was, one immediate one that comes to my mind is actually during grad school. So I used to do like a lot more theoretical work which was exciting. I do like abstract things. Um, like I actually enjoy like working on like very abstract things too. Uh, and I was working on stochastic hybrid systems, uh, which were like a pretty powerful, like uh, pretty powerful set, like, like tool and pretty powerful, like formalism. And there was like quite a bit of work, like in terms of like decidability and in terms of like very theoretical questions there. And I was working on some of these very theoretical questions. And there was like a moment of doubt that okay, I'm working on this thing and I can write a paper on it and maybe like, I don't know, five other people will understand that. And like, whose life is it actually changing? Like, like what problem is it actually changing? Even though like it's a really nice, like interesting, like puzzle for me. And, and that was like a big moment of doubt for me. Like, is this really what I want to solve or do I want to work on something that has like maybe a little bit more of a tangible like uh, effect that I can, I can see? And, and that was like a point in time that I like switched a little bit my research directions and like started working on like safety of autonomous driving and, and, and human robot interaction a little bit more. Um, so yeah, so there are definitely moments of doubt at times. Sometimes it leads to like changing your research direction and sometimes it's good. Like I'm actually very happy that, that I did that because uh, like some, yeah, yeah. You end up like in situations that you're more happy. In. Yeah. That's very brilliant. Yeah. So I don't know if ego is important for you as a researcher. Ego, <laughs> interesting. Um, ego. So I want to say I don't have a big ego, and I I want to say it is not that important. And I actually get annoyed when people have big egos. Um, yeah. So I think that is the common paradigm. And and the reason that I feel like I don't have a big ego is 
I would be really excited to talk to like a chemist who can help like me think about like my robotics problem. I mean, in general, like I try to be open-minded to like many different like fields and views. And I feel like that can, that, that, that is like one aspect uh, when I think about me not having a big ego, because I feel like there are many different viewpoints and perspectives and one needs to be open to them. And, and that helps like asking good questions that helps learning that helps like pushing the boundaries of research. Um, that said, I'm also pretty confident, <laughs> so I don't know if that's like big ego or not. Like, I don't like, I I, I don't expect like validation from the community often, yeah. so I'm like pretty that's happy great. and confident. So I don't know if that's big ego or not, but I'm pretty happy. With oh, no, <laughs> well, that's a great, yeah, that's a great quality. So I'm curious, what could be the most important quality for you, Dorsley, have to maintain? This is a very one important quality for you. Yeah. So. Um, this is something that usually graduate students like ask me when they're starting in the lab, like, what do you expect like me to have like a real graduate student? And my answer is often like curiosity. So just like being really like curious about like the thing you're doing, because like if you're curious, you're going to dig deeper. You're going to ask the next question. You're going to like go and find it. And if you're not curious, then you're going to work on it a little bit and you're, you're going to get tired. And I think the other thing that curiosity adds is uh, just learning. Like, like being open to learn every day, every week. And I think I try to do that like now, like, and, and, and in general, like, I think it's really exciting to just be open to learning new things. I don't know if there is advice was given to you and was a life changing. Do you remember any advice you have ever received and was a life changing and a stick to your mind every day or maybe sometimes it's, it's really good advice. You've yeah. Received. That's also a very good question. Um, yeah, so like there is one, I guess. So, so, so I don't remember who gave me this advice, but again, I try to like follow this like very vigorously, uh, which is do one thing that makes you happy every week and do one thing that makes you uncomfortable every week. So, so I really wow. try to like have both of them every week. That's very good advice. Yeah. I don't know if you have any final words you'd like to say or what's the community here, the podcast. Any final words you'd like to say? Yeah, so I think um, this is something that I feel like I've like, mentioned a couple of times throughout the questions already but one thing that i feel like it helped me like throughout um is not worrying about the boundaries like the fake boundaries that we put in between fields like we often like say oh i'm a control theorist i'm a roboticist i don't really like care about like what you're doing and i care about my own problem or i'm a vision person or i'm an nlp person and those boundaries they are they're often very artificial and, and there are a lot of like ideas and tools that could be used like from other fields and in our field. And, and, and I think in general, like being open and, and, and going across boundaries fluidly and easily is a pretty important skill and useful skill to have if you're working in robotics. That's a very good one. Yeah. Thanks so much. It was, it was very inspiring to listen to you and such an honor to have you again on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This was fun. <laughs>